OCD. Good morning, everybody. It's the table that's off, isn't it? It's the table that's off. They're throwing me off like that. I can't preach under these conditions. Yeah. Did you guys see the sun yesterday? Did you see that it came out? Oh. And then you woke up to this. Was it still foggy when you came in, or the fog kind of still foggy outside? Yeah, uh, I know. I don't think I have that, uh, that seasonal depression disorder thing, but I don't know. After a week of no sun, it could start to, woo. So it's good to see that yesterday. Good to see you this morning. Uh, I'm going to be in Acts chapter 10 in just a moment. If you want to be there ahead of me, that'd be great. You can also follow along on the app. You can take notes on that. I'm on the third week of our series. Didn't see that coming. If you've missed anything, you can listen to it on our app. Or you can go to our website, livingstones.cc, and you can catch up from there. Just by way of a quick review, the very first week we talked about the possibility, we were just entering into 2017, and so we talked about the possibility that even if every year of your life has stunk, that maybe this is the year. And for you to walk into the year with this hopeful expectation that this is the year that you finally step into your life purpose and your life calling. We talked about a call to purpose. That even if you're older, that God has a way of breaking into our lives and providing us a plot twist. And so we looked at even the story of Moses, who was much older in life, when he received, out of nowhere, a burning bush moment that changed everything for him in regards to life. He received a call to purpose. And so we finished by asking the question, what might your call to purpose or burning bush moment be in 2017? And then last week, we talked about the reality that if you're going to step into your life calling and purpose, then you will also have to accept a call to repentance. And that call simply means you're going to have to give up something in your life. Maybe it's a way of thinking. Maybe it's a particular behavior, an emotional attachment to someone or something, a particular life direction that you're headed to step into your life calling because your burning bush moment might be over here, but currently your life direction is headed that way. It will be the act of repentance, the Greek word metanoia, to turn around that you might go that direction and thus encounter your burning bush moment and your call to purpose. And that many of you are just one act of repentance away from stepping into your life calling. And so we ended last week with asking, what is that one thing you know that you need to let go of in your life as you receive your call to repentance? Well, as we step into the third week here, message of didn't see that coming, I, I begin by being struck by how many things we used to think when we were little kids, like, and you don't even know where it came from, right? Just kind of things that just stuck in your mind, you don't know where it came from, that were just, now you can look back and go, Oh, that was just goofy. Like, I don't even know where that came from. And so things you believed as a kid that now that you're older, you can look back at and think, that was ridiculous. So I've got some things on the Internet of people who are confessing, this is what I used to think and this is what I used to believe as a kid. I thought the handicapped parking logo was a guy on a toilet and for people who really had to go to the bathroom. Like, that's what, I don't know where I got that from. Or this one here, I thought if someone kissed me, that meant we were married, right? So where did that come from? This one, that everyone is born a boy, if you were meant to be a girl, that it would just change over time. <laughs> a boy obviously thought that. I was thinking. Definitely convinced some sort of creature would come out of the toilet when I flushed it, so I would always wash my hands first, flush, and then run out of the bathroom. I thought women got pregnant by overeating, so I told my mom to eat more so I could have a little brother. <laughs> I used to think that there were little people inside traffic lights who pressed buttons to make them change from green to yellow to red. Or this one here, I always thought that these were cloud factories. <laughs> you probably can't read this, so let me read this to you. It says, whenever I complained that my neighbor could stay up later than me, my mom would respond that our house has a bedtime of 8 p.m. 
So I thought that when your house was built, someone from the government would tell you what your assigned bedtime was. It was if we stayed up past the assigned time, we would get in trouble. This led me begging my mom for us to move to a later bedtime house. I believe the topless bars were drinking establishments that had no roofs so you could drink and watch the stars. <laughs> I just want to go to the topless bar tonight. That's what I used to think laugh tracks on sitcoms were from microphones inside TV sets, so I used to laugh goofy to see if my friends could hear me. I thought my grandma's skin was made out of tortillas. The crowd has turned. <laughs> you don't mess with grandma. When I was a kid, I thought the hazard button would make your car jump. <laughs> I believe the circumcisions were how the doctor made girls. Yeah, all right, moving on, okay. Until I was seven, I thought that Navy SEALs were actual SEALs that the military trained. <laughs> I used to cry anytime someone stepped on a mushroom because I thought Smurfs existed and were being murdered. And you might be able to bring up your own thoughts of memories from when you were a kid that now you can look back and think, what was I thinking? I remember two specific, I might have even mentioned them before, but um, I remember when I was a real little kid, uh, the Charlie Daniels band came out with that song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Remember that song? The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Loved it. And so as a kid, I thought radio worked like TV where, you know, it's the same time slot every week. So it came on at Tuesday. So so that song came on the radio. I loved it. I wrote down the day and the time so that a week, so all week long, I couldn't wait. I just waited all week long with great expectation to come back, turn on the radio. And so I did turn it on and they did not play Charlie Daniels bands that went down a drum. I remember just being, what? I waited all week. And that's so my parents explained that radio doesn't work like that. And I was just so disappointed. The other thing happened to me is 1976, so I'm dating myself here a little bit, but it was our 200th anniversary being the United States of America, and we went to a pizza place, I remember with my parents, and they had on the, the little plastic cups a scene from the Revolutionary War. You know, they were all in their uniforms, and I remember, and they had their muskets, and I remember as a kid, that is so cool, and I couldn't wait for the Revolutionary War to come back again so I could fight in it. Like, I just wanted to fight in the Revolutionary War, and for some reason in my head, I just thought time was cyclical, and it would come back. And that's what my parents had explained in my little five-year-old brain, that time is linear and we will never be going back to the Revolutionary War again. I just remember so devastated that I'd missed my opportunity to fight in the Revolutionary War. It's one thing, I know, to look back on and be amused at things you used to think as a kid and that you can consider it to be silly now. It's another thing when it's a major worldview or an assumption about reality that you have being challenged. And I have been there too. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I have thought something fully convinced of it. And in fact, I couldn't even imagine the possibility or even a scenario that would cause me to change my mind, to only in the end change my mind. And I have to tell you, every time that's happened to me, it is a disorienting experience. And my guess is if that's happened to you in your life, and I'm just going to assume anyone who grows up and matures, that probably has happened to you. It can fill you with all sorts of anxiety and defensiveness and uncertainty. And what happens is in the moment you're thinking, dear God, if I was wrong on that, what else might I be wrong on? And that could be a very unsettling and scary feeling. But part of the process of maturing is to reevaluate reality, the way things are, and decide if what you received growing up is in fact the truth. Because so much of what we think about so many different things are not due to our rigorous study or contemplation or examination, but rather because that's what we got from our upbringing. 
You believe all sorts of things that you accept as true, and if you had to boil it all back, roll it all back, the reason why is because that's what your mom and dad believed, and that's what you grew up in, and the community around you reinforced those sorts of things. We were conditioned to think certain ways, and it was reinforced, sometimes even subconsciously, by people all around us that now it's just, well, this is just the truth. Like, this is a truism. It just is. You don't even think of it as a life assumption or a conditioned thought. It is truth. It is reality. And this happens on all sorts of levels in regards to issues of race and politics, what's socially acceptable and what's not, work ethic, spending habits, assumptions about our health. It's what we've always known and always thought. But by maturing, and what happens is sometimes this happens to relationships with other people that you finally get to know in your life, and they begin to speak into your life and challenge some of those assumptions that you just accepted as truth. And you know this happens in marriage. I mean, how many of you got married with certain assumptions about life and about money and how this is supposed to work? And that immediately got challenged by somebody who grew up in an entirely different upbringing and had totally different assumptions about those issues. Or maybe it might be through education or just time spent in reflecting why do I think this? Where did that come from? And that's why so often you can share stories of, yeah, my family, they think like this, but I mean, I think entirely a different way. But that process, I admit, can be jolting, can be disorienting, especially initially, and that's because we always think we're right. And, and you hear that about people, don't you? Oh, they always think they're right, to which I would respond, because, you know, I hear that often for several reasons. Uh, what I'd say is, everybody thinks they're right. Like, nobody holds an opinion that they think is wrong. That's ridiculous. If you have an opinion, if you think something, you think it's right. Now, you could be more dogmatic about it. You could be more difficult and stubborn in regards to examining those sorts of things. But we all think we're right. That's why we think and believe the things that we do. And that's why, in the end, it's difficult to have that challenged or unsettling. And it feels so personal and scary when it feels like what we believe is wrong. And if you think that in itself is difficult, let me tell you something. It's a whole other level of scariness and insecurity if you believe something because attached to it is God said so. See, it's one thing to have some assumption about health challenged in your life. It's another thing to believe something and to believe it because in your mind, God said so. And then to have that challenged. There's a whole other weight and a whole other authority. And I've got my own pretty substantial list of things that I used to believe because I thought God said so, that I don't anymore. And I don't think I gave up a single one of those things without some degree of struggle and difficulty. And I mean, I go through my life. Did you know one time in my life, I and mean, this is how we, I was raised, grew up, uh, everything we just did this morning in worship was a sin. You know why it was a sin? We had instruments on the stage. I grew up believing that you could not have instruments in worship because the New Testament does not have any instruments in worship, and thus, if you did that, you were sinning. I have all sorts of convictions I used to have in regards to what women could or could not do in regards to the life of the church that since then, my, because God said so, got challenged. Or who was going to heaven and who was going to hell, I knew exactly who was making it and who wasn't. And if you asked me, I would tell you and probably have a tract behind me that could support my conclusions. I've had to change. My views of the Holy Spirit, even my views of God himself, have been changed. It can be scary. What I want to share with you out of Acts 10 is a moment for the Apostle Peter, who's about to encounter a very scary change in his thinking that in his mind goes back to a, well, God said so. So here's where it begins, verse 1 of Acts chapter 10. 
at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, what isn't explicitly said here, but what you were supposed to catch by reading that description of Cornelius is, he's a Gentile. He is not a Jew. That's the critical factor. He is, in the, he is a soldier in the Italian Regiment, a centurion, a Gentile. Verse 2. Now, he also, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. So Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying at Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. So when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier and was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. Amen, right? That's why I like Peter. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into the Bible calls it a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners, and inside of it, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds, and then he heard this voice, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, I can't express to you enough how this vision was probably jolting to Peter. And Some of you, I know, um, like, I never dream. Like, very rarely will I wake up, and I mean, I probably dream all the time, but I don't remember it when I wake up. Uh, some of you are like, nope, every morning you wake up, you're like, what? Like, you have that experience of that was the craziest, wildest dream that you could imagine. Uh, it has to be sort of that moment, I would think, for Peter as he comes out of that trance, as he's probably thinking to himself, I don't know if I ate a burrito last night. Like, I don't know what was happening, but that was one crazy dream. And what in the world was it about? And, and don't forget, this is not just about Peter's preferences. This isn't just like God showed him liver and onions and said, get up and eat. And Peter's thinking, ooh, I don't like liver and onions. No, this is something much bigger. This is, I'm not eating that because God said so. And listen, Peter has the Bible behind him. Like Peter has Scripture behind him. This isn't just what some preacher told him or something that was drilled into his head by some crazy Sunday school teacher with weird theological understandings. This was the law, like black and white, no gray areas. In fact, let me read it for you so you get a better understanding of what Peter has to be going through in this moment. It's in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. Ribeye is all right. Praise God. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have any divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you in case you were thinking about camel steaks for lunch. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. No rabbits do. And the pig though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. No bacon, 
no ham. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. In fact, of the creatures living in the water of the seas and the streams, you may eat any of that have fins and scales. But all the creatures in the seas or streams that do not have fins and scales, whether among all the swarming things or among all the living creatures of the water, you would regard as unclean. Do you know what that includes? Shrimp. And if you eat bacon rack shrimp, you're going to burn in hell forever. Praise Jesus, bacon-wrapped shrimp is back on the menu. I'm going to go to verse 12. Anything living in the water that does not have fins or scales is regarded as unclean by you. Verse 13, and when we come to the birds, you're to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, good news to me, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, and the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey. Don't eat owls, just by rule. The stork, any kind of heron, the hopo. And the bat. <laughs> in terms of insects, they walk on all fours or be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some insects that you can eat, the ones that are hop on the ground, like you may eat locusts. Mmm. Grasshoppers, crickets, they're all fair game here. But all other flying insects that have four legs you would regard as unclean. Now, listen, the text goes on. I don't want to read all of it. But you see, this is the Bible. Like, this is not a guy going, eh. I don't know. I mean, it's like, no, black and white. Like, this is the law. We do not eat these sorts of things. And Peter has thought this his entire life. His parents thought it like this. His grandparents thought it. His rabbi talked about it. Everyone that he looked up to said the exact same thing. His entire community would surround him and reinforce this belief, not just because that's what we prefer, but because God said so. And it became an identity issue even. I mean, this is what sets us apart from the Gentiles who are eating bacon? We, God's people, eat different foods, foods that are clean. The Gentiles eat those foods that are unclean. And listen, if you're living in the first century in Palestine, especially with the influence of the Pharisees, who are very meticulous about wanting to keep every aspect of the law and observe all the purity codes, this is a big deal. You would be very super aware of what was considered clean and what was unclean, what was holy and what was just common or profane. That which made you righteous, and that's what made you unrighteous. And there was even a hierarchy of things that were clean and unclean in first century Judaism, I mean, even among people groups. So if you were an undeformed, purebred Jew, you're good. No problem in terms of access into the temple, into God, into the rituals of uh, Judaism. But if you happen to have a deformity, you get bumped down a notch. Or if your birth was a little questionable, maybe some illegitimacy, you get bumped down a notch. But if it happened to be uh, illegitimate via a priest, that's another category. I mean, there were just categories of people groups who were clean and unclean. And you know who's the bottom? You had the very bottom of all Gentiles. They ranked the lowest. And one of the ways that you knew that was because we were God's people who do this and eat these things, and they don't. And Peter was steeped in it. And then this. God in a vision showing all these unclean animals that Peter has spent his entire life learning that he cannot eat and hearing the voice of God say, get up, kill, and eat. Notice what Peter does. When Peter hears this, what does he say? He argues with God. Like, he is arguing with God because this is his, his whole life he's grown up in this. And it's disorienting, and it happens three different times. Now, here, the story continues. Look at what happens in verse 17. While Peter was considering about the meaning of the vision, which is important, 
The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. So Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, here's what's happening. God is orchestrating something for Peter. God is about to launch Peter into his most important life calling. It isn't just about being just a fisherman. Remember when Jesus said to Peter and others, you're fishermen, but I'm going to make you fishers of men? Listen to me. The floodgate of that comment from Jesus is about to be wide open, and Peter's about to step in to his life calling and purpose. But before he could get there, what Peter has to step into first is a call to a changed mind. Before Peter can step into his life purpose and calling, he has to step into his call of a changed mind. And this is what God has been orchestrating through a series of events. It was God who gave a vision to Cornelius. It was God who dispatched an angel to deliver that vision. It was God who delivered the vision to Peter. God is the one who's putting together the variables that will lead Peter to a call to a changed mind. So here's what happens next, verse 23. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. And the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends, like, come on over, everybody. I got a, a holy man showing up to the house today. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up and said, stand up. I'm just, I am just a man like you. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large, a large gathering of people, and he said to them, this is this, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or even visit a Gentile. You hear what Peter's saying? I'm not supposed to be talking to you. Like, I'm not supposed to be in your house. Like, it is against our law to even that we're even associating with you like this. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. This is amazing. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I, and may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And so Peter began to speak. I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Now, you might have heard this and think, oh, yeah, of course. But I want you to understand this is coming out of the lips of a, of a man who has been steeped in a theology and religion that says you are the chosen people. Like, they are the elect, not anybody else. Like, this idea of favoritism, no, listen, God clearly has a favorite. He's chosen the Jews by election. They are his, not even because of anything they did, not because they're so righteous, but God made a promise through Abraham, so we are his chosen people. And here, what he is saying coming out of this vision is, I can now see that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
And you know the message that God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And so what will happen next is Peter will give an entire gospel presentation about Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and what that means and the implications. And then it wraps up in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, like, get their designation, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. You know what's happening here, right? Like they're witnessing, like remember back in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and everyone started speaking in tongues? That same thing is happening right here in Cornelius' house to Gentiles. Then Peter said, verse 47, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. And just like that, Peter has changed his mind. And we're not talking about changing your mind on whether you like Diet Coke versus Diet Pepsi sewage. I'm talking about a changed mind on a fundamental reality that you grew up your entire life believing. And not just as a belief, but a belief that was reinforced with a God said so. And this was the pivotal moment in the history of the church. In fact, unless you're Jewish, and some of you might be, but for the rest of us, like the reason why we got in the church goes back to this very moment. This is what the Apostle Paul later will refer to in Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. God was expanding his kingdom, and he was entrusting his servants with the task of proclaiming that expansion, and that couldn't happen until first they had a call to a changed mind. What's interesting to me is that the vision never says, hey, the Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. I mean, wouldn't that have been so much easier? Like it's a sheet that comes down with just unclean animals, and he hears the voice, get up, kill, and eat. It would have been so much easier in my mind if God would have just said, hey, Peter, guess what? There's this guy named Cornelius. He's going to send some people to your house. You should go back to him. They're Gentiles. I know this is going to freak you out, but don't let them. I'm accepting the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. That would have been so much easier, right? Like just very explicit. But that's not what happened. Peter had to meditate on this trance, this vision. And then Peter has a relational experience with Cornelius and his whole household. In addition to the final convincing point that the Holy Spirit showed up, that Peter began to put all these pieces together. Based on his experience with Cornelius, he was able to look back at his prior beliefs, those purity codes, those food laws, and determine now that the trajectory of God's heart and will was inclusion in the kingdom of God. He had to put that all together. And that same thing happens to us today. Sometimes we have hardcore beliefs that we can't ever imagine letting go of, but it will be because of our personal experiences and encounters with somebody else that that relationship begins to shape the way that we think. And let me just give you an illustration that might be safe now, but would not have been decades ago. Because 50 years ago, the issue of divorce and remarriage it was settled, and it was black and white, and there was no controversy. We would all think the same things, and we would all believe the same things, and we would set, settle it with a, the Bible says so. It means what it says. It says what it means. Case closed. But then what happened? Families 
actually had kids who were getting divorced. And through that personal experience, they learned that all those black and white assumptions about right and wrong and those clean and unclean, crisp categories of thought were actually a whole lot more complicated. There wasn't just an innocent party or a guilty party, as you might assume. And people began to go back and look at the issue of divorce and remarriage through the lens of personal encounters and experiences and recognize that the trajectory of Jesus' heart and mission is inclusion. That doesn't mean the Bible has changed. It just means because of this experience, I'm now standing at a different place to look at the text and ask questions I would have never asked prior. Never came up. Because of what I'm going through with my own children, it now has forced me to go back and ask, does the Bible really, is that really what Jesus said? What's the context? What's the bigger thing that's going on here? And all of a sudden, you get a new generation, they have different thoughts about what, at one time you could have been a God said so, but now you go back, oh, because of these personal encounters, because of what's happening with the Spirit of God and the inclusion of the church, you can recognize, oh, I have a changed way of thinking. And you might think everyone around you is going, oh, that's great. You've got a new perspective and a new way of thinking. Praise Jesus. But I need to warn you up front, not everybody is going to be celebrating your change of thought. They didn't for Peter as well. In fact, when the Apostle Paul will step into his life calling and go after these Gentiles for Jesus, it becomes the first brouhaha to really break out in regards to the early church. In fact, they had to call every, they had to have a special meeting. Like that happens in churches sometimes. You have to have a special meeting in Jerusalem. They called it the Council of Jerusalem. It's in Acts chapter 15, where all the elders and all the apostles and all the leaders and all the people had to gather together and discuss and investigate these claims that Gentiles were actually getting into the kingdom of God. And even after that, when the apostles agreed with Peter and Paul's message, it was a struggle for the early church. Paul will spend his entire life, really till the day he died, arguing and defending that Gentiles get to come into the church and they don't have to be circumcised to go through the law to get there. Because he had Judaizers, what they called them, who were running around the churches that he even planted and trying to convince them these Gentiles don't get to just jump on in the church by faith in Jesus. They have to go through the food laws. They've got to go through circumcision. They've got to keep the same laws that we did. And thoughts that go way back have been reinforced within community for a long time and have a thus saith the Lord. When you change those, that will always create conflict when challenged. And you've probably experienced that yourself with some way of thought that's changed in your own life, that now when you go back to your family reunion, you don't think like the rest of your family, and that causes that tension that breaks out at the family meal, especially around election time. You know what I'm talking about, right? And so you might even hear that. Well, that's not how you were raised. Nope, no, it is not. (laughs) Or maybe it's from friendships, and you've changed your thinking about certain things, and now you'll hear this. Oh, you think you're better than us now? So you could expect conflict and some pushback from those around you who feel like their own sanity or identity or assumptions of reality are now being challenged and placed into question by your new thoughts and way of thinking. That always happens, and don't let it shock you or surprise you when it does happen. But here's what I'd like you to take away from this message. We've been talking about walking in your call to purpose. But walking into your call of purpose will usually include a call to repentance. But also, more often than not, you will not get by without first passing through a call to a changed mind. And I know it's hard to imagine right now. And Trust me when I say I completely understand. I know it seems most unlikely. I know it can 
be scary and even feel disorienting, but I'm asking you in 2017 to hold on to the possibility that God this year might be calling you to a changed way of thinking in a particular area. It might be theological, something that you've always believed and thought that it was because that's what the Bible taught and thus God said it. But the trajectory of God's heart and mission and kingdom is going to challenge that and call you to a new way of thinking. And that new way of thinking might usher you even into a new call of purpose. It might even put back together again and restore relationships with people that it's been severed because of those beliefs. It might cause you to embrace those that you once thought unclean, even on subconscious levels, because you now have a different way of thinking. You have a changed mind. I'm asking you to simply hold out the possibility that God may move in your life this year in that way. But it might be theological in a different way, not some fine point of doctrine, but rather just even a different way of viewing God altogether. That maybe you have lived your whole life picturing God as distant and removed. Now, oftentimes that's because your own earthly father was distant and removed. That maybe 2017 is when you get a new way of thinking and recognize that's not our God at all. Or maybe for you, your thought of God is he's perpetually angry and disappointed in me, and that's affected you in so many different ways. That maybe 2017 is the year that you no longer think of God like that, and it changes everything for you. Or that God, by extension, is harsh or perfectionist kind of God. Or to the other extreme, that God is like a genie in the bottle or Santa Claus that exists to shower you with your wish list, all of which might be challenged this particular year. Maybe it is profound thoughts that you have internalized and repeat back to yourself over and over again that aren't even theological. It's just those tapes that get played over and over again that you just live now as if they're true. Maybe in 2017 you discover, that's a lie, and I'm going to change my mind. Maybe your whole life you've believed your stepmother when she told you that no one would be able to love you. This might be the year that you have a new way of thinking and recognize that's not the truth at all. Maybe 2017 is the year that you've always thought because of what your ex-husband told you that you were stupid. And you'll realize this year, that's not true at all. Maybe this is the year that you keep playing in your head because you had some best friend sometime in your life that backstabbed and betrayed you and told you that you were ugly, unlikable. That this is the year that you recognize that's the lie. You believe those thoughts, and they've kept you in the same place year after year, and those thoughts are powerful. It's the power of your mind that creates your reality. If you think down, you'll go down. If you think up, you'll go up. If you think negative, you'll probably be negative. If you think positive, you'll probably be positive. Your mind is creating for you your reality and your future, and you can hold on to those old thoughts that are keeping you stuck. But I would have proposed not this year, not in 2017. You're going to experience a call to a changed mind a new way of thinking, and that will move you into your call of repentance, which will lead you into your call of purpose. You aren't going to think those thoughts anymore, and you're going to see yourself and God and the kingdom with clarity and truth. Amen? Let's stand again. Let's pray. What I ask for, God, is a revelation of your own heart and your own thoughts, and particularly how they might be played out in our life, that we all recognize and are willing to confess. We have things that we think and believe about the world,